Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Coger Center Arts Roundup. Welcome to the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our special guest this week is Marty Fort. Marty is the owner of the Columbia Arts Academy, Lexington Music School, and Irmo Music Academy Studios in the Midlands area. Uh, Marty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nate. So, uh, full disclosure, Marty and I have known each other for a very long time, and wow. so I'd love to start uh, by talking about a little of how you got here, um, but in the early years, because when I first think of Marty Ford, I think of Marty as a rock musician. So, can you talk about your growing up playing guitar, because I have a feeling that that background is what sort of led you to this position of uh, teaching lessons in, in these studios. Well, you know, Nate, you and I had the advantage of growing up during the MTV era when MTV was MTV. We also came up, um, you know, during the era that we had record stores, <laughs> you know, um, whether it was vinyl, CD, or cassette, or whatever. And so really for me, Nate, the, the love of music guitar was really driven by consumption of, of MTV. And, you know, um, being in fifth grade, and that's where I met you. Um, and it was highly influential. And also at that time, um, you know, people can say, I, I, I am happy to see a reappreciation of music from the 80s. Um, I mean, uh, even if you look at a lot of indie rockers, um, that will go back and see, you know, that even though the, the, the way they dress was pretty funny, um, it was a high level of musicianship. You know what I mean? The music of the 70s and 80s. And for me, especially as a guitar player, it was almost like a law, Nate. You know, every guitar, every song had to have a guitar solo. You know? Right. Um, now there are no guitar solos, really, but there's been a resurgence. So for me, it was, you know, going to Dutch Square to the record bar or, you know, whatever mall. And, and every time I'd hit a mall, the first place I'd go was a record store. Um, or any chance I could get to watch the MTV countdowns, or really, um, there was a show for heavy metal called Headbangers Ball, which we had VHS cassettes in those days, <laughs> um, and staying up to record those for 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. to see the latest videos and that kind of thing. Um, but then also, you know, getting to see Def Leppard at the Carolina Coliseum in 1987. And I mean, I saw Guns N' Roses open for Motley Crue when really nobody knew who Guns N' Roses were, if you think about that. And that would have been, I guess, 87, you know, the Coliseum. Um, so long story short, I just immersed myself in it, you know, fell in love with guitars. But also, I went to the University of South Carolina uh, Community School as a kid. And I was uh, in the Strings Project, and uh, my mom took me to recitals this would have been you would know the building now this is where the school of music used to be um and that's where all there was recitals were held i'm not sure which is in that building now so that, that, the school of visual art and design now but that mcmaster college was the uh, school of music before it became the building right next to the coger center yes yeah, so i spent a lot of time you know at the original school of music over there and um, that was very impactful as well. And it, it's part of my book. I have a book called The Ultimate Guide to Music Lessons. And what I tell parents, any parent that's listening to this, if you want to help your kid get active in any instrument, it starts at home. And it starts with the music that's played at home. By and large, they're going to go with what you listen to in the car, 
while you're working out and just taking them to shows. And of course, now as we're doing this interview, that's extremely almost impossible with what's going on, but it will resume to normal at some point. And when it does, you know, taking your child to any live event um, helps them and it definitely helped me. And I remember being, it must have been in high school, I, I remember looking at you because you were uh, w well known in the high school for being a rock uh, guitarist. And I said to you, well, what are you going to do with this music stuff? And you looked at me and said, I'm going to be a rock musician. Um, and I have seen you play on stage with Kirk Hammett. So, uh, so you know, in some ways, you're very much still a rock musician. But I noticed that you went to school and you studied classical guitar, not just as an undergrad, but you got your uh, master of music in classical uh, guitar performance as well. Um, could, how, how and when did you start to play um, you know, classical guitar? And how, do you still play multiple genres of it to this day? So, you know, back to the movie thing, there was a movie in the 80s, um, you know, you and I will remember Ralph Macchio and the, the Karate Kid, um, but he, he most, a lot of people younger won't, but he was in a movie called Crossroads. And Crossroads was about um, him as a guitar player and the Crossroads in Mississippi, and Steve Vai was in that film. Um, Bill Cannon-Geyser, who actually has performed at USC and done master classes at USC, was his, um, If you, this is kind of funny to think, Nate, but his guitar double, like his hands were not Ralph's hands, it was, it was Bill's hands. So, saw that, I was like, you know, I got to get into this classical guitar stuff. There's also, of course, The Doors uses classical guitar, Led Zeppelin uses a lot of finger style. Um, you know, bands like Yes Do, even Metallica, of course, does nylon string stuff. So... Back to the community school, I, I went my second round with the USC Community Music School um, was through their guitar program. I would have been around 15, and it was a grad assistant for Christopher Berg named Mike Connors. So he was one of Berg's um, graduate assistants, and I took lessons with him. Um, that led to the Governor School for the Arts, um, and then eventually ended up um, taking you know, doing my master's with Christopher Berg at USC. So I've known him, wow, was that, that's now 28 years, 1992, you know? Because I took with Berg at the governor's school, you know what I mean? So if I've, I had USC School of Music and USC is kind of, Nate, as you can hear, been weaving through my history since I was, you know, very, very young. Um, but between the movies and the albums and the USC Community Music School, um, that's how I ended up with the classical guitar. And I still play to this day. Um, you know, not as much. Um, did a lot with WIS TV Sounds of the Season when they were doing that feature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but for anybody listening, you know, get with a good teacher, get your education down, learn how to read, learn your theory, get your ear going. Um, if you get all those things in place, you can play anything you want. At North Carolina School of the Arts, where I did my undergrad, I played in jazz band three years. So, um, I've tried to have my hand in a little bit of everything um, and also took my third round. <laughs> you're taking me back in time with the USC Community Music School was for voice lessons. And I took voice lessons there. So, um, you know, it's uh, I've done a lot with it. So I, I did a um, 
special performance with the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra when I worked at Lincoln Center in New York. And they did a gala where they had Crosby, Stills, and Nash come, and they did jazz arrangements of Crosby, Stills, and Nash songs. And one of the things that would drive the jazz musicians crazy working with the rock musicians is that so many rock musicians don't know how to read music. So they sure. would do these arrangements and they would hand them a score and they would, the musicians would look at it and say, I don't know what any of this means. Right. Um, so it sounds like um, you, you have a background that taught you music, music theory, how to read music. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the importance of the training process and uh, which I'm assuming uh, the students at the music schools aren't just learning um, how to play the instrument, but they're learning how, you know, they're learning some music theory along the way that teaches them how to read music. I, I say this as the parent of a student there, you know, he gets given sheet music that he then plays from. So I, I see him learning some music uh, theory as well as just, you know, the instrument itself. So. Uh, how important has that been to your career, uh, that sort of real training in music, not just in the instrument itself? Well, I'll give you two answers. I mean, as far as it relates to me, you know, Nate, I just had and still do, just had a lot of drive. I mean, I was at School of the Arts. They didn't have a jazz guitar teacher. So I, you know, took, I got in a car and drove to Greensboro, you know, 45 minutes an hour away to take jazz guitar lessons with their community school. So there's my fourth community school you know, round. The guy's name is Greg Heisler. And that was my commitment. I was already in college, but here I am driving an hour to another town, right, weekly, to learn specific jazz chord charts, as you talked about at Lincoln Center. It's, it's a jazz, you had to be able to see you know, the chords and the sharp fives and the flat 13s and nines and all this stuff. and and be able to read through that, right? So for me, it was just a matter of, I knew I wanted to play in jazz band, I knew I wanted to be able to do anything I could, and I always thought at the end of the day, I was gonna be a professor. I ended up being an adjunct professor at USC Upstate in Spartanburg for six years, and that goes back to the drive. There are very few college guitar teaching positions, Nate, as you can imagine. So here I am driving, you know what I mean? for three years straight to Spartanburg two to three times a week. Um, and then the rest of the time was online. Now back to the academy students, that is much more of a personal fit. Some people come in and I talk about this in my book and they just, they don't want to read. They just want to do, let's say black Sabbath, heavy metal. Well, the honest answer, Nate is we're, you know, the teacher is going to take that student for what they, they need. You know what I mean? Um, Hendrix couldn't read. And if that's what they want to do, it, you know, we are, a school that serves the public, that's fine. You know what I mean? We're not a conservatory. However, let's say you came in and you had different goals for your child and you said, no, I want my child to read. Well, then we go into that. So you see what I'm saying? Ours is very much tailored since we serve the public to what the parent and student wants. And really it starts with the parent because they're the ones that are providing the investment to say, okay, what is the outcome you want? You know, we, the first lesson we do a, a new student questionnaire. We have the parent fill it out and then we give it to the teacher so we can really try to get on the same page, Nate, from day one of, okay, you know, where is this headed? So you've got uh, three studios running now, mm -hmm. but in the very beginning, it, you started as Marty Fork Guitar Studio. It was just you. And was that a, a way to sort of 
make a living, supplement your income teaching um, while this was even before you started teaching at USC Upstate. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I went to LA and, you know, briefly came back and got married to my, my wife and we've been together 19 years and um, she works at USC in the, um, uh, in the library school there. She actually does Cocky's Reading Express. And so, you know, I needed a way to make a living. I worked across from you at the Coger Center at what was then Kinko's. And, you know, made seven fifty an hour and wore an apron and a name tag and taught guitar, you know, as, as well. Just do whatever I could to make it go. And I was still playing in bands at that time. Um, I mean, I was still writing original music and, you know, doing things like Atlantis Music Conference and touring around the Southeast and, you know, still making a push. You know what I mean? Um, this is interesting for anybody listening that wants to get on a career path. USC Upstate, Nate, did not post a, like, guitar position, really. It was more of, um, I was looking through it. I had never really heard of USC Upstate because they used to be USC, UC Spartanburg, right? And... They had a fine arts department, so I reached out to them and said, are you hiring for guitar? They said, no. Okay. Well, then four days into it, they get kind of in a bind because whoever it was, like, quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I went up, interviewed, went through the process and everything. And um, so that's what I'm saying. Like, if I wouldn't have, you know, been researching online, reaching out to people, trying to create opportunities, Nate, is what I'm saying, you know? Right. Um, never would have came through. But I had a great time there great ride there uh have now you know um one of our teachers now you know max hardy still teaches up there you know so uh he also got his master's from usc i think he's working on his dna i can't remember now and look a big big hats off to christopher berg if he's listening to this i mean what he's done with that program since the 70s is just amazing and um just have been lucky to be a part of it but yeah it was um kind of the transition from setting up that room, um, having upstate, but also this was what a normal week was like for me, Nate. In one week, I would go to the Orangeburg Fine Arts Center and teach one day, teach on Rosewood at the guitar studio, go to Spartanburg. Um, you know, I could go to other schools. I taught at Hammond, you know, after school for a while. I taught at Heathwood while I was in high school. Um, so I've always had that kind of just bohemian running gig to gig to gig. And that vocation to, to this day is really still the same. Um, that's what most musicians do that are trying to, to make a go of that. Um, you have to have multiple gigs. And you were uh, teaching at Upstate. And then what you had said to me was um, your, the path that you sort of saw for yourself was transitioning from that gigging musician into more of a uh, college teacher who has a more stable job is teaching more at a particular place. But while all of this was happening, the Marty Fort Guitar Studio blossomed into Columbia Arts Academy. And then the success of that sort of forced you to make the decision of which path did you want to go down? Is that right? That's right. And I, I specifically remember going to the head of Music Get Upstate, and he got it. And I said, "Look, you know, the, the numbers at Columbia kept getting bigger and bigger, and it went from me and, and one other teacher to thirty students, um, to hundred students, to two hundred students. And I remember a sheet of paper in two thousand five and eight where I wrote 
if I could just get 200 students, I mean, I'd, like, I'd be done, you know? Fast forward to today, we have three locations, we own the buildings for each, and we're at over 1,000. You know what I mean? Even as horrible as coronavirus has been, I mean, we're still, you know, uh, fighting the good fight and, you know, doing what we do. Um, but yeah, it, it was one of those things in life where I didn't choose the academy. The academy chose me. And it just got financially to a point where I transitioned to Upstate Online, kept growing the school. Then we got to 600, almost to 700 in one location. And um, then Lexington in 2012 and Irmo in 2018. And you're, you you own the buildings for all the locations. I know that you share the building, so to speak, I guess, right, with Jam Room yes. um, on the uh, Rosewood location, which is Columbia Arts Academy. Yeah, Jay's been there for almost 30 years now, and so he and I own Rosewood half and half. Um, Lexington was a, like, fire insurance drafting thing, and I have that 100%. And then Irmo um, was on the market less than three days. Um, that was a former um, Russell and Jeff Coldwell Banker building. Um, and we have two businesses inside of that. The downstairs is the school. And the upstairs is where we do the musical ladder. You know what I mean? Like I said, you've, you've, you're a dad with us. You've been around. You've seen it. Um, the wristbands and trophies we do um, is now that system uh, where students can win those by practicing. It's, it's not a participation award. They have to achieve it. They have to pass their test with their teacher. Um, can you go into a little more detail about what the musical ladder is? Because I know you said it's now used by hundreds of schools around the world. Lots of students are a part of it. And as you just said, it's not just a, um, you don't get a prize for having stuck with it for six months. There are tests along the way. So yeah, I'm assuming that you have thought this through from a musicianship point of view of of not only how to inspire people, but what milestones they should achieve as they progress through their instrument. Is that is that way this is laid out? Yeah, so, you know, we were doing great at attracting the students, but um, it's hard. They're distracted by sports, lack of interest, video games, grade issues, you know what I mean? So we needed a way to step up our game for the students to keep them excited about music and engaged in music. So I came up with Musical Ladder, their wristbands, their different levels. And the concept is if it's your child, for example, Nate, you know, they have to do a test with their teacher. The one of the things that was important to me is there's not a curriculum that kind of confuses a lot of people. But my thing is this, you know, our teachers are independent and that's one of the keys to our success. I'm trusting them to know what they're doing. And frankly, as a teacher, we all have our own thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, we generally like to do what we think is best with our students. So if you're the teacher, you design the test. That's also important, Nate. We serve special needs children. We serve people of all different ages. We serve people with vision issues, all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? So the, the test to me really needs to be a personal thing between teacher and student. And it could be anything ranging from a scale to a song, to a theory exercise, to whatever. But I think it's crucial that the teacher is the one that comes up with it. They notify us, they pass, and then we go through there. Um, I really only meant it for my own use, and we started licensing to others. Now we got 120 schools, um, U.S., Canada, and Australia, and 30,000 students using it. And we just got our first patent two weeks ago for one of the components. We got a couple of those coming, so 
Very excited to have that patent in hand. And uh, once again, I only planned it, Nate, for me, but it just took off like a rocket when all these other schools started seeing it. We actually had a parent email the other day, Nate, from somewhere, and I can't remember where. She said, in the country, said, I'm, I'm leaving this school, and but I want to keep going on the ladder. What can I do? I'm kind of like, well, <laughs> you had to find a school that's on the ladder. You know what I mean? It's, it's a really powerful motivation because, again, as you said, it's not participation. It's based on achievement, and there's nothing to motivate these children than the excitement of the wristbands, the trophies, the certificate. They, you've seen the pictures on our socials. You've seen it in our schools. I mean, they get so excited, and that was my motivation. But in addition to that, the other thing that I see as a great motivating factor with the school is the performances. So the students aren't forced to, right? Because I, I'm assuming not all of them want to participate, but it seems that the majority of them are excited to participate in recitals, but then they have the opportunity to do some of them uh, perform in other places. So can you talk about like that as a motivating tactic um, and and um, how that works, the importance of, of performing in front of people and, 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 and where all the students can be seen, you know, uh, graduates of the school or even continuing uh, students that are at the school, where, where people get a chance to see them perform in public. Well, so absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the big thing with us is, number one, as you said, we don't pressure them to do it. You know, if they don't want to do it, they don't do it. And often, not too, too often, but sometimes a kid's just not ready. And I've done it myself many times. I'll just pull the mom or dad and say, look, this is normal. Your child's just not ready. Let's wait because we do them every six months. OK, now, given that there there's no pressure and they're not mandatory, I am proud, Nate. And I'll give you some inside baseball. We have about an 80% participation rate in our recitals, and I'm very proud of that culture. Last round we did, we had 900 performances in five days. And the reason I'm proud of that is our teachers and our staff are very good at stressing the positive, stressing the low pressure, and stressing the quality. So live performances are huge for us. We're very excited about participating and um, being able for the first time to perform at the Coger Center for the Arts in the large orchestra room. Um, we got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland coming up this fall. Um, we do Crawfish Festival. We have done St. Patrick's Day before. Um, we, we get all kinds of opportunities. You know what I mean? Jaron Music Festival. So, you know, we get offers all the time. We're very happy to be able to do them. And, um, it's a huge part of it, but it's, again, it's if the student's ready and if it's right for the student at that time. Um, so sort of leaping ahead here, um, the most recent time I saw you play was at the Columbia Museum of Art. Um, they had the exhibit by Kurt Hammett up for a period of time that was sort of cut short to the public because of the closures due to COVID-19. But uh, you and uh, other instructors from the uh, schools have uh, some side gigs and I guess you will play together and I'm not even sure what version of whose band it was but um, when I turned up to see you all play I was like oh I recognize all of these people from recitals right I, I've seen them uh, with their students at the recitals um, and then there you all were playing and then of course the sort of 
amazing moment is when you get the guitarist from Metallica on stage with you all. Um, but it wasn't just him. There were also uh, there were some students, or at least one student of the uh, school's guitar player up there with you all as well. And I can only imagine, like, not only must it be inspiring for that student just to be playing with you all, but then you've got, um, you know, professional, other professional musicians like Kirk Hammett on stage. So uh, how, does, how did all of that come together? And um, can you just talk about that experience? I want to say Brian Dolphin. You know, Brian, um, you know, is now moved to a different area of the country. But, um, you know, he was so instrumental in all that coming together. So I want to thank him. Um, and he was in the development department for the museum and um, just had everything to pull it off from the contacts of the organization. But also, of course, Joel Ryan Cook and Jackie Adams. We did a really cool panel with Kirk and the students. Um, but a lot of conversations with Brian, meetings with Brian, planning. So that's, I guess, lesson number one for this podcast is a lot of planning, a lot of conversations. Two, I want to go back to what you said about me in high school. I mean, the way I ended up working with Brian uh, was through contact, you know, Wade Sellers. Um, he's also done, you know, a variety of things with USC and he connected. So, so there's a lot of synergy in this podcast, you know what I mean, of, of like, or not even synergy is not the right word, just like lessons on how things get done, Nate, that, you know, if it wouldn't have had, if I wouldn't have had a reputation of a guy that they could trust, right, to take it serious, do a good job, not only musically, but professionally. And so that, that was a big, I guess, part one, you know? Yeah. Um, part two in the meetings I had with Brian, we broke it down into two things. One for the opening, they wanted to have really a showcase for the kids. And so we had a variety of kids. We have a teacher band. The reason I do that is, look, um, kids are going to get sick. You know, maybe they smash their hand playing baseball. <laughs> There's a lot of sports injuries out there that we interact with. Um, you know, things happen, right? So it's important that we have a teacher band to be there regardless because the show must go on, right? And the kids did great. And um, then the teachers played after. Um, as far as Kirk coming up, you know, that was just through a lot of discussions and we put together a great set for the gala, you know, of the, of the hits. And that's what was interesting is that, you know, we played some metal, you know, we did some Metallica and some Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, but we also, as you saw, did play that funky music, White Boy and The Outfield and, um, Rick Springfield and Journey and Van Morrison and, you know, <laughs> Um, I mean, we were there toward the room. So that's one of the big things for me is, is that um, if you study hard and you take your instruments seriously, you can do anything you want. And we were able to go up and do um, one song with Kirk, UFOs, um, Too Hot to Handle. Um, and also a big part of it was the contacts of everybody that played. You know, the, the main vocalist for that song was Patrick Baxley, who sings in Hot Lava Monster. He is an amazing <clears throat> vocalist. And let's be honest, Nate, guitar is great, but he's the quarterback. You know what I'm saying? So without him up there with Kirk, it's just so, you see what I'm saying? I could go on and on. There's so many players that came together to do that. Um, but it, it really started back when I met you in 1995 of all the years of study, all the years of doing it. But also, you know, you saw me play at Heathwood. I played at Rockefeller's when I was 15 or 16. Right. Even at that age, art kept having us back for the same thing. Even at the age of 15 or 16, I had the reputation of the guy. There's two types of musicians. 
ones that can do it and make it happen and are dependable, ones that are brilliant, but eh, not so dependable. <laughs> and any artist listening to this, aspiring or whatever, you, you want to be in the category of known as the person that gets the job done. You know, who's going to get the job done? And that's what we came to the museum to do. And I thought it worked out great. And the photos and videos support that. What was really cool, Nate, was all the Instagram posts that made after the event <clears throat> of videos and stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Ross Halflin was there, who's a legendary photographer taking pictures. Um, but once again, thanks to Brian Dolphin, because he's really the man that, that made, ultimately, ultimately, ultimately made that happen. Well, I just think it's so cool that you started in the music business, um, had a dream to uh, play the guitar for the rest of your life. And even though um, maybe your 13, 14, 15 year old self would have not seen you where you are now, that you had the wherewithal to um, take whatever was out there and turn it into the best possible thing at the time. And there's no, it's definitely no small thing to go from teaching just yourself to suddenly being one of what, you know, 60, 70 people teaching over a thousand students. Um, that, that says a lot about not just the talent of you as a musician, but the really the eyes wide open to where life is taking you. And I just think it's so important that students who are playing and say, I want to be a musician, not to have that single-minded one-track thing, that means I'm going to play, people are going to pay me to play the guitar, right? You, you So many musicians I know do so many different things, um, and you're an example of that, of how many different things you do, but yet you still on the weekend will get up and go play in a band, um, even if that's not what you do Monday through Friday. Hey, real, quick, real quick to that end, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if the museum's going to put it on their website. I hope they do. But the guitar panel with Kirk Hammett, you know, what was so cool that came out of that, Nate, was it educated us all on how diverse he is in his own story um, and all the different styles he does. I mean, you know, from he's just a sponge, he studies everything. And that was the main message to the students is, is to echo exactly what you just said. But I wanted to let you know, Nate. Kirk Hammer also echoed it, that it's about diversity. And it's about musical diversity, just being open to anything. And, um, and back to the USC thing, since this is a USC podcast, that's what the university has in their community school. And so many great musicians around there, and everybody would really be surprised, um, you know, how many of your favorite musicians not only play metal, rock, but jazz, classical, who knows, you know? Well, uh, anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself, about the schools before we sign off? I really appreciate your time with us. Want to thank you for having me, Nate. It's been awesome to see you, you know, all the awesome stuff you're doing at the Cogar Center. And um, I, I'm, I'm excited to watch your career trajectory as well. And um, I just want to stress to everybody, whether you're in Columbia, Lexington, or Irmo, come by and see us. It's ColumbiaArtsAcademy.com. And I'm thankful for the relationship with USC, not only my wife working there currently, but myself being alumni, my father being alumni. And, um, you know, you took me back in time today, Nate. Um, I just encourage everybody, give music a try. The great thing about music is it's just month to month. You know, give it a shot. Um, everybody can learn. You're never too old to learn. And get your kids into it. It's just an awesome thing. But, Nate, I just want to thank you. We're so excited about performing at the large orchestra room 
at the Cover Center when time will allow. Yes, we're looking forward to hosting you. Thanks again so much for your time. Once again, you've been listening to the Cover Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our guest this week has been Marty Fort, uh, rock musician, classical guitarist, and the owner of the Columbia Arts Academy, Lexington School of Music, and Irmo Music Academy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nate. The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at kogercenterforthearts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit garnetmedia.org.